You're listening to The Grindstone, a philosophy podcast from Purdue University. What's up, everybody? You're listening to The Grindstone, the official podcast of Purdue University's Department of Philosophy. I'm your host, Matthew Kroll. I am a postdoctoral research associate in the Department of Philosophy and the Research Data Libraries. This is, in fact, our first episode of The Grindstone, and I must say I am pleased and somewhat humbled to have today's guest with us. It is none other than Professor of Philosophy and, in fact, Head of Department, Dr. Christopher Yeomans. Dr. Yeomans, thank you for joining us. Ah, thanks for having me. Thank you for all the support as well. Uh, should be said that, Chris, you've been very influential in helping us get this podcast off the ground, so full disclosure to everybody out there listening, <laughs> we wouldn't be here without you, hence you were our first guest. Happy uh, to help. Part of the, uh, part of the deal. No, um, real quick, just for listeners too, you can follow us on social media by us, I mean the philosophy department here at Purdue. We are on Facebook at philosophy at Purdue, both philosophy and Purdue are capital P's. We are on Instagram, philo, P-H-I-L-O underscore Purdue, and on Twitter, philo, all capitals, P-H-I-L-O underscore Purdue, Purdue, in lowercase letters. So you can follow us there um, and see what we're doing in the department. Um, Speaking of what we are doing in the department, uh, Chris wanted to ask you a little bit about your background, how you came to Purdue. where you're coming from in terms of your career, what your field is, and maybe a little bit about how you how you discovered philosophy, if you will, or at what point in your life you started to study philosophy. Yeah, uh, it's been an indirect journey is maybe the thing one ought to say right off the yeah. bat. So <laughs> I was an undergrad at University of California, Berkeley. Oh, and nice. And when I had started there, there was no unit limit, so you could just te- keep taking classes. and Like no cap on your No cap on before they would force you out. That's right. <laughs> um, and there That's was so still, Berkeley. And there was still rent control. Oh, nice. Right? So you could get a studio in downtown Berkeley for 150 bucks a month and so on. And so I was That's in ridiculous. no hurry to finish up or go anywhere at all, to be perfectly honest. And so I was taking all sorts of different classes. I took philosophy classes. I took literature classes. I took nice. linguistics classes. I just found it an intellectual feast and loved it there. And then uh, they instituted a unit cap. And all of a sudden, I was looking at having to get a major um, <laughs> and graduate on time. And it turned out that the, the way to do that was to get a degree in linguistics. So my bachelor's okay, degree is actually in linguistics. Um, and you were a 17th year senior after you had taken no, <laughs> actually this everything on the... No, no, no. Uh, <laughs> no, no nine semesters, I guess it was. Oh, nice. What nice. It was yeah, yeah. Average time. Yeah. Um, but... Already, I think by the time I had graduated, I had already moved into San Francisco and was working. I worked for lawyers for a while, and then oh. for a number of years, I taught in preschools, particularly nice. three to five year olds, um, oh, which is still one of the no. most philosophically interesting things I've ever done. You get yes. to talk to kids before their conceptual structure is really solidified. So all of that play that you're trying to introduce into your freshman Phil 111 students 
is there because the solidity hasn't built up yet, right? And yeah, yeah. so you can just have fantastic and fascinating conversations. Um, Philosophical, no doubt. Oh, yeah. I mean, absolutely. I've heard kids that age say something where you're just like, I never would have had that insight. Yeah, wonderful stuff. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Um, and so at the time, I was reading lots of political philosophy in mm. particular. I just found that's what I was reading in my spare time, particularly um, Frankfurt School types like Herbert okay. Marcuse. And so I got interested in going back to school to study that stuff and particularly to understand the Kant, Hegel, and Marx out of which that stuff comes. I see. So I moved down to San Diego, where I'm originally from, did a master's degree at San Diego State and then a PhD in philosophy, and then a PhD in philosophy at UC Riverside. And so I'd gone to UC Riverside to work on Hegel with Pierre Keller, but um, for those of you in philosophy, if you associate UC Riverside with anything, you probably associate it with free will and free will discussions. Ah, okay. And the conversation around free will was just absolutely fantastic, and there were so many great faculty members interested in it and so many great graduate students that just by force of gravity, I ended up interested in the topic. And so I wrote a dissertation on Hegel and Hegel's views about free will. <laughs> nice. um, and so from there, let's see, I uh, got my PhD, UC Riverside 2005. And then my first job was at Kenyon College in Ohio. Um, and I taught uh, Kant, Hegel, political philosophy there for four years before I came here to Purdue in 2009. And so then I did two books on Hegel, and then finally I'm getting back to political philosophy and critical theory, which had sparked my interest in Hegel in the first place. <laughs> and right now I'm co-authoring a monograph with one of our former students, Justin Litaker, that's tentatively titled A Critical Theory of Economic Agency. Awesome. Difficult question maybe to ask because to singularize it in this way, but when you think back in, you know, whether it was as an undergrad or really at any time of your life, was there a moment, a text, a teacher, an instructor, a philosopher that, that really, like, can you remember that moment where you just thought, okay, now there's a thought that's like really interesting to me and I like, I like this, I want to do this. Do you, do you have maybe that sort of yeah, moment so in your life. it's an easy text to pick. It's Herbert Marcuse's Reason and Revolution. I think it was assigned to me in a summer course at Berkeley, 92 maybe, something uh, right around there, maybe 93. I don't know, somewhere early 90s. Um, was Tony LaRussa out there at that time? <laughs> oh, I did. So this is a digression, but I worked Welcome in a, on the grindstone. Right. I worked in a law firm in Oakland through my time in Berkeley as a file clerk. And this law firm, McDonough, Holland & Allen, had um, <laughs> some season tickets to A's Stadium um, nice. where they would oh. take clients. And every once in a while, they wouldn't have anybody to take, so they'd let us scrubs from the file room go yeah. out. And so you'd get paid on a early spring afternoon or, nice. you know, a summer afternoon or something like that in the Bay Area to go sit mm. and watch baseball, you know, an afternoon businessman special or something like that. Those were good days. And they must have been pretty competitive then, right? Like if, if I recall that time of my childhood, you know, 
I'm yeah, a baseball yeah. fan. Yeah, that's yeah. that is awesome. But so, okay, so it so was back to the Marcuse. Yeah, What's interesting <laughs> is so what I was interested in in the Marcuse was. I mean, precisely what you get out of the Frankfurt School, right? On the one hand, there's extraordinary um, conceptual rigor and innovation. There's also concrete sociological description. But the third element that I think is really important is an attention to culture, Mm. right? And Mm -hmm. particularly literary and artistic culture and to see all of those put together and then as an interpretation of Hegel was really exciting. Now nice. I look back on it and think he's got Hegel entirely wrong. But uh, <laughs> at the time, it was that connection of these elements, I guess I would say, the conceptual, the cultural, and the social or political, however you want to put it. That was what was really exciting to me. That's interesting, because, and I think that's really important for getting people to be interested in studying philosophy. Like, I recall a class I took, I was an undergrad here at Purdue, 98 to 02, and I took a class with um, Martin Matushtik, who's no longer here, but um, it was on, I think it was like 20th century continental, but it really was about like critical theory. Um, And so we read One Dimensional Man, Marcuse's One Dimensional Man. But I do remember some, and I also took a class with him back then on existentialism. The book that really stood out to me there was um, Ethics of Ambiguity, Simone de Beauvoir. And I do think that there is something to be said about seeing the intellectual rigor, but also... Um, a concern, really, with the social and and also an awareness of cultural movements, yeah. like say, particularly art, you know, movements yeah, of yeah, art, yeah, like yeah, literature, yeah, yeah. film, things yeah. like that. And it really spoke to me. So I think that's interesting. And I think and popular art, right? The yeah, way yeah. that art influences political events, right? The way that it influences political culture, right? Mm-hmm. So Adorno and Horkheimer, they were interested in all sorts of things. But among other things, they were interested in the entertainment industry and the culture industry and hmm. how that worked. And this, let me just, as a plug, that's straight Hegel, right? I, I mean, okay. I tell, when I teach Hegel's aesthetics, I, uh, the mantra that I repeat all the time is that we talk about fine art for Hegel. For Hegel, all art is public art, and now what does that what does that mean? What, what what I mean is what's important about art for Hegel is that it gives you an individualized representation of the absolute, of absolute truth. Mm. And that allows it to play a role in the organization of public space, in the organization mm. of public experience, that philosophy, given its abstract conceptual structure and its um, uh, demands of education and so on, really can't play. And so what mm. makes art interesting, and the reason that Hegel takes, in a certain sense, Um, ancient Greece to be the apotheosis of art is not that they were the most skilled sculptors or the most skilled poets, but because he thinks in that place and time, art did the most to frame the public experience that everybody had in common, right? So I often tell people if Hegel's writing about art nowadays, he's writing about like Star Wars films or he's, you know, writing a, um, an obituary for Stan Lee or right, something right, right. like that, right? These storytellers that didn't just reach some niche audience, yeah. right? That reached 
everybody, right? Yeah. And that's why I interjected with hip hop. I mean, yeah, do you think that's, that's right. a fair suggestion Absolutely. just because that is the cultural right. paradigm for music and that's also right. just the nature of hip hop is that, I mean, you know, in its roots is that it really is a communal sort of community driven right. thing. But now because of technology and the popularity of the music is really that's a right. global thing. But it comes along with a certain form of social organization, right? A yes. certain form of movement and Liter- so on, Yes, right? exactly. Yep. Exactly. All giving expression to a certain kind of lived experience. Yeah. Right? That's what art's supposed to do. That's amazing. So, yeah. okay, I didn't realize that. The, and that's that's Hegel's conception that's, of art. Yeah, on my view. Okay. And so, and then how was the... and, and and with the going back to the Marcuse piece, oh, yeah. um, you feel that maybe Marcuse, um, though the, the the critical school critical theory had some of these elements. You think though that maybe um, in terms of faithfulness to Hegelian doctrine to Hegelian literature, that maybe they did not maybe have this correct. Or in general, people tend to get Hegel's view of art wrong in this way. Right. Yeah. And I mean, look. In part, this is the. Um uh, the whining of the professional Hegel scholar here, right, or something. <laughs> um, it's still. That's what we're here for. I will. Yeah. I, I still recommend Marcuse's Reason and Revolution as the first book on Hegel to students all the time. Okay. Right. And um, I have no objection to the Frankfurt School or critical theorists taking up this bit of Hegel or that bit of Hegel or so on. There's n- there's no point in being a Hegelian fundamentalist, as it were. Right on. Yeah. But I do think it's interesting. This book that really got me into it (laughs) and got me into thinking about Hegel, I now look back on and think, oh, that's really interesting, but it's not at all Hegel. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It is interesting, though, just in terms of the life of, you know, a philosopher and just the way that, you know, even yourself looking back on it, you've matured, you've grown, your interests changed. And as you said, now you've kind of swung back around in your career to writing yeah. this book with Justin Litterker, who was yeah. a graduate of the department here, um, that maybe gets you closer to the person you were when you yeah. were 20 or yeah, whatever yeah, yeah, yeah. it is. It's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I write a lot of my books in margins, right? And right on. books that I've you know, originally marked up 20 years ago, now I reread them and I have arguments with myself in the margins. Uh, <laughs> that's an amazing. I think that's a, just like, it's aesthetically really pleasing if you go through a book a second, third, fourth, uh-huh. fifth time and you use a different color pen or a pencil. Yeah. Like it actually creates this sort of interactive work of art with the text, yeah. but it's also this like deep dialogic, like you're talking to yourself five yeah, years yeah, ago yeah, and you're yeah. like, why did I think that was important yeah. when really the important thing in this paragraph is this or whatever it yeah. may be? That's awesome. Um, yeah. Want to stay in sort of broadly the German, the space of German philosophy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll work our way back there. Because I want to shift and ask you some questions about Kant. Mm-hmm. Um, partly, I know that last year there was a Dimensions of Normativity conference mm. here on on campus. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, maybe you'd like to tell listeners a little bit about that, because I know you helped organize that and some people um, in the Kantian milieu that you, yeah. Right, yeah. So this is something that I put on with um, Ansgar Lucy, who is a postdoc at um, LMU uh, Munich, which hmm. is where I spent my sabbatical, supported by the Alexander von Humboldt Foundation, in 2016 and 2017. Right. So he and I had been talking about this, and he's writing a book on the concept of humanity in Kant. And uh, one of the things that's so interesting about Kant is that he's interested in normativity, that he's, he's interested in questions about what we ought to do or what the right thing to do is at a whole variety of different levels, 
right? Mm. For scientific reason, for moral mm. reason, for political reason, mm. anthropologically, logically, okay. and so on. Mm. And so it's a kind of fascinating project to try and figure out how these levels go together or even to put them in conversation with each other. And it is, of course, complicated by the fact that he addressed these levels at different stages in his career, right? And so there's oh. writings before and after what's usually called the critical turn, right, with the writing of the Critique of Pure Reason. Okay, okay. Um, and so that conference was devoted to trying to tease out and explore as many of those different uh, dimensions as we could, right? And we had a fantastic cast of people who were here and a really, really good conversation over about three days. Yeah, that's that's awesome. exciting. I should say thanks for that. And I should say to listeners, you can find the list of speakers in the program. Uh, if you right. go to the philosophy department website and then the news and events tab, um, and there is a conferences sidebar menu. Um, and if you go there, it'll list things that we've done here on campus previously. And I know that the, yeah, the program for that is up and, you know, searchable if people want to um, see, you know, some of the details about that particular, about that particular conference. Um, but so staying sort of in that realm, well, actually, let me, let me put that to the side for a second, because I want to come back to specifically Kant and this uh -huh. idea that has always confused the heck out of me, which is the uh -huh. categorical imperative, and yet it seems like something you learn in an intro to ethics class, an intro to philosophy class. Mm -hmm. So I want to come back to that, but also real quick, just talking about, um, to sort of bring these things together, things that are happening in the department. I wanted to ask you about the recent... Uh, campus-wide initiative, the Integrative Data Sciences Initiative, I believe it's called. And I was wondering, um, I know that the philosophy department is playing a role and is collaborating in this, and I just wondered if you might want to tell listeners a little bit about how a philosophy department fits into an Integrative Data Sciences Initiative, because that seems very interesting to me. Right, yeah, so there are a lot of opportunities for us here. So the Integrative Data Science Initiative is something that's coming out of the provost's office, and Purdue is putting a lot of resources um, into it. Uh, it's happening other places as well, but it comes out of it just a kind of basic realization that in a whole bunch of different fields, as varied as computer science and um, biology, uh, massive data sets are a crucial epistemic tool, mm -hmm. right? So this is one of the essential motivations. And so the thought behind the sort of integrative side there is there's got to be some way in which we could talk about the different methods that we use and the different consequences that we can draw from this kind of data. So I think, I think of that as one real motivation for people now really thinking about data science. Okay. The other comes from the ethical and the political side, right? Mm -hmm. And that is this recognition that it's not just 
um, decoding the genome that generates massive amounts of data. It's everybody's posts on Facebook every single day, right? right? The right. amount of social media data that is created <laughs> and the privacy and commercial issues that go along with it, mm-hmm. right, um, have created a space where everybody understands how much data is being produced. And there isn't... Um, even the beginnings of a kind of conceptual framework to bring to bear on it to understand its normative consequences. So I just mentioned one thing about that. Yeah, please. The the normative framework that people normally want to bring to bear on it, and which Google and Facebook are going to notify you of every once in a while, is privacy. But it's a real question whether the notion of privacy has any grip at all on Facebook. Right? What notion of privacy applies to a platform where the whole point is you blast out details about your life to everybody, right? It it does kind of look like the concept and the the, uh, object are not really going to line up here very much. So anyway, all of this is going into data science, right? And I sometimes feel like those of us uh, who are in this space are a little bit like the Sorcerer's Apprentice, Right, having <laughs> called up powers beyond our control and trying to figure out how we get control of them, right? And for philosophers, a lot can be done, I think, with conceptual clarification. So there's a lot that can be done on the epistemic side of this, okay. right? There's a lot that can be done in the philosophy of science, mm-hmm. right? Um, and then there's a lot that can be done on the side of ethics and politics as well. I mean, I really think to um, use... Deleuze's notion that the job of philosophy is to create new concepts, that this is a phenomenon that calls out for some new concepts to be created and made rigorous. So um, I think it's an important space. I think it's a space that is still wide open and needs a lot of clarity. But look, that's what philosophers are supposed to be good at, right? So it makes it um, a really good thing for us to do and an important thing for us to do, I think. So two questions, Mm -hmm. um, if I can remember both of them, but at least the first one, um, the the sort of the epistemic angle, um, could you maybe flesh that out a little bit, like uh, what this sort of epistemic space is now with data sciences or big data in general? Um, also want to give a special shout out to metadata, especially when it comes yeah. to social media, because yeah, people yeah, forget yeah. about the people focused on the data, forget about yeah, the yeah, metadata. Yeah, yeah. But uh, no, um, but yeah, if you could just maybe talk a little bit about the that role for philosophers to create concepts in terms of the the epistemic yeah. function or or that right yeah yeah yeah. So uh, if I were to use a metaphor that that maybe not uh, may not say very much, um, <laughs> right now. Uh, um, Right now, this sort of epistemic space is what I would characterize as an affine space, and we'd like it to be a Euclidean space. And here's what I mean by that, right? right? A Euclidean space we know about, right? It's the space of the Cartesian coordinates and so on. And two important things about that is it's orientable and measurable, right? Okay. There's an origin. You know where everything goes from that direction, and you know how far it goes from that direction. Okay. If you kept Euclidean space and took away those two things, roughly speaking, you'd end up with affine space. And you have a bunch of, like, jagged edges. And you know they're together in some way, but you can't really plot them. 
right? You can't really say, oh, this is further in the same direction as this one is, right? Um, or this is bigger than that one is. And again, maybe it's not the most helpful metaphor in the world, but right now, what I think you have are a bunch of different techniques being developed. And they're being developed on different kinds of data sets. So one problem is just big, 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 big data, yeah. right? Another problem is data that has to be extensively cleaned before it can be valuable at all. Another problem is metadata, right? There's all sorts of data-related problems and all sorts of different techniques that have been developed, right? But they all just sort of sit jagged next to each other right hmm. now, I think. Hmm. And part of the interest on that side of data science is trying to have a bit more comprehensive view where you could sort of plot things, right? Where you could say, oh, technique A is relatively similar to technique B in virtue of sharing these sorts of characteristics okay. and so on. And that, again, I think is the kind of thing that philosophers are likely to be good at, right? Interesting. Um, so that, that leads me to the second question, which I thankfully remembered. Um, before we get back to sort of Kant, and, and I want to try to apply Kant to, to mm -hmm. data ethics or the data, you know, this space if possible, yeah, yeah, yeah. but in general, do you think that that's the role of the philosopher, not just in this data sciences space or, you know, sort of, you know, political theory and, and ethics of data or data sciences? Yeah. Do you think that's, um, in general, the role of the philosopher is to sort of help refine the concepts by which we understand things and maybe help demarcate these spaces or at least attempt to, um, on, let's say, like on a broader cultural yeah, yeah, space yeah. or something like that. To... It's a role, and okay. I think it's an essential role that philosophy plays, and it's a role that it plays particularly in situations in which there is confusion mm, mm -hmm. or in which there is extraordinary division, right? So mm. I don't mean this just to, to, um, to indicate the old saw of philosophy as the handmaiden to the sciences, <laughs> right? right? Um, I think there's the, the ethical side and the epistemic side are not completely separable here, okay. right? And part of why it's important to get some sort of grip on the epistemic side is because until you do that, you don't really have that much of a sense of what you're trying to say regulate or what you're trying to determine the norms for on the ethical mm, side. Mm -hmm, okay. Right, so this is the critical theorist coming out in me again, <laughs> right? Yeah. That, um, description and justification, right? Um, mm -hmm. uh, uh, conceptual structure and normativity, right? That, that, that those sides go together here. And I don't know that there would be as much interest in the epistemic side of things or as much urgency if there wasn't also a sense that quite frequently ethical lines are being overstepped, right? And um, that quite frequently we're creating capabilities that are misused, right? So just take the example of Cambridge Analytica, mm -hmm. right? What was that? Oh, so so Cambridge no, Analytica. I was kidding, but no, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah let's no. Right? We should explain. Um, <laughs> so the uh, group that or the the firm that used very sophisticated data mining and analysis techniques 
to manipulate social media, right, for certain purposes and so on. Yeah. And I think what's important about this is it was really largely invisible for a long time yeah. because the outlines of the epistemic side of what it was doing, I think, just weren't very well understood, okay. right? Hmm. So part of getting a grip on the ethical and political side of this is bringing to visibility what's going on on the epistemic or the uh, epistemological side of things, right? Yeah. Um, and so that's the sense in which I think the, the two really do have to go together, right? You don't you don't want to be in the situation of being the senators who are trying to cross-examine um, Mark Zuckerberg, and they just have no idea how social media works, right? And so he can just, you know, stonewall them. Um, if you want to deal with the ethics and politics, you got to understand what's actually happening. But, yeah. right, it also works vice versa, right? If you're going to do responsible science, hmm. that's also normative, right? It's both directly normative, it's responsive to epistemic norms about okay. how we best use information and how we know things. Okay. But it's also responsible to ethical norms, right? If you're working with certain kinds of data, yes. right? If yeah. it's derived from a genome, right? Something like that. You might want to make sure that you had permission yeah. from the person where you got the DNA or whatever it is and yeah. so on. And so any the, subject that or where that's a right. human subject is involved, there's going right. to be. Yeah. So, so I think the, the two really are intertwined. Hmm. Um, but again, I mean, part of that is uh, the critical theorist coming out in me, because I think the same thing is true of more obviously political phenomena. But and let me just add this third thing, right, which yeah, I think is true about data um, and is also, um, which is, uh, which I mentioned when we were talking about critical theory, and that's mm -hmm. the cultural side of it. Yes. Yeah. Right? Um, uh, so Jaron Lanier was just here. We just had him as a part of Donner Doom, and he has this new book called um, 10 Arguments for Deleting All Your Social Media Accounts. Right? Um, and uh, he was very interesting to listen to, right? He's pro computers. He's in a um, was one of the early uh, creators of virtual reality and so on. Oh, that's right. Yeah. He's no luddite, right? Um, but he thinks social media has this particularly pernicious um, function of magnifying negative emotions like paranoia and anger oh. and that's built into the algorithmic basis of what's going on right so part of what was so excited exciting about his talk is he had the epistemic side and the ethical side together right and he was able to talk at a level of sophistication of how they fit together but there's this that's third awesome. side of it which is the cultural side of it and that's how difficult it is for many people now to live without social media right um, and mm -hmm. how important, even for younger people who could care less about Facebook, right, to have have a Facebook account for things like events and groups and yeah. so on, right? Keeping um, people in the know and knowing you and just yeah, yep. being hip, right? To what's and going there's on. fear of missing out and so on. Yeah. So there's these real cultural factors. Interesting. And I, I guess to my mind that that that's the package that always comes together. Right. That social psychological level really comes out with the social media. Yeah. Um, but that's interesting then that for you as, um, you know, maybe at heart a critical theorist, that there's sort of that natural complexity of all of these yeah. elements 
you know, mm-hmm. um, coming together, maybe just generally philosophically in the way you approach philosophy or the yeah. things that, that you're, you know, interested in, but also it really seems to be coming together here in this new data-driven world yeah. and in social media and in just general, you know, the technological climate of, you know, the world we live in. Yep. Which is 2018, just in case. Yeah. <laughs> um, space yeah. aliens find this 100 years from now. Um, right. Yeah. I mean, so many things are it's this blowing way, our minds right, right now. Yeah. <laughs> so, so um, I just came from a seminar on connected and autonomous vehicles, and I'm such a luddite. I don't use Uber or Lyft, but somebody explained to me that when you use Uber, not only do you rate the driver, but the driver rates you. And so you have this um, incentive to be nice to the driver, to tip well, and so on, right? There's online reviews for things like Yelp, right? There's a whole Chinese social media network, right, where you get the worry that things like home loans, right, creditworthiness is going to be indexed to certain kinds of social media things. There's this... Social ranking, effectively. Social ranking, right? So there's this weird way in which social media makes the whole world just a small town. Like it's a giant small town where everybody knows everybody else's business, right? It's it, Social media in a certain sense creates a community that's the opposite of the big city, right? Where you're anonymous, where you can get on that New York City subway and you don't have to make eye contact with anybody. And if mm. somebody talks to you, they're just crazy. and You don't have yeah. to talk back to them, right? Yeah. But social media goes the opposite way and makes everything, everybody's business, right? And makes your personal reputation instantly accessible to other people. Um, So these cultural features, right, are, are, I think, really important. It's fascinating. I mean, it just, it it really is. And I can't tell if I get freaked out by this stuff or if I find it sort of intellectually scintillating or probably a little bit of both. (laughs) But I mean, it is just a lot to take in. So I want to back up and ask you a question about Kant and then jump right back into this sort of social media space. So I like to tell people that I really have no business being in a philosophy department for the following reason, maybe for many reasons, but for the following reason in particular. But I took three classes on Kant, a lower level undergrad course where a large portion is like modern philosophy, a large portion was dedicated to Kant. An upper uh, upper level course that was just on Kant. It was called Kant and post analytic or post Kantian Kant and post Kantian philosophy. Uh post-analytic. I don't know if that exists, but I just uh-huh. coined that and give me that one. Um, that's Sellers and Rorty. Okay. Okay. <laughs> is that, that's out there? Oh, no. <laughs> Close enough. I thought, man, um, we're really going places. But so, you know, that was an upper level course. And then I took a graduate course as a master's student, uh-huh. just dedicated to Kant. Yeah. So I've read portions or all of the critique of pure reason three times. Uh-huh. And as I like to say, I know nothing about, I couldn't uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, just, it just, I don't get it. And that's yeah. not because I don't think it's valuable. It's like physics or something to me. Yeah, I'm just yeah, yeah. like, it's so, it just really frightens me. And yeah, I have this yeah. sort of like anxiety, this mental block. Yeah, yeah, yeah. However, I have taught some ethics classes. And obviously Kant is, you know, a major figure in, in intro classes and intro to ethics classes, particularly for this idea of the categorical imperative, just, you know, in the interest of time to just kind yeah, of yeah, yeah. nutshell this. Um, so I wanted to ask you about the categorical imperative and how this may work in a social media space or the, yeah, yeah. Or the current technological space. So for listeners who maybe aren't aware, um, as best you can, and I realize it's putting you on the spot um, and, you know, can't necessarily expound upon it in the way that maybe it deserves. But um, 
what is the categorical imperative and what are some of the theoretical you know ideas behind yeah, yeah, yeah. Kant's moral philosophy well let me start with the second because it's very much relevant to the social context okay right so um, one way to talk about the motivation is to talk about Kant as an enlightenment philosopher right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and when Kant tries to answer the question what is enlightenment he says it comes down to dare to know. Don't be a child. Think for yourself. Make your own decisions. Right? Follow the reasons where they go, not what authority figures tell you. Don't defer to anybody else. Have instead the confidence to use your own reason to discover the way the world works hmm. and to discover what the right thing to do is, hmm. right? So in this sense, the critique of pure reason, that is Kant's theoretical philosophy, roughly speaking, and Kant's practical philosophy, the groundwork, the critique of practical reason are very much of a piece, right? What Kant says in this very beginning of the critique of pure reason is, look, the way science works is not we just passively see a bunch of stuff and try and figure out the pattern. The way it works is we have an idea and we go out and we take it to nature and mm. we interrogate nature and for terms of this idea by running experiments. Mm-hmm. And we set the terms for what our engagement is. And hmm. the idea behind a categorical imperative is similar, right? Okay. The idea behind a categorical imperative is... Do you, discuss another little bit of terminology. Yeah, please. It's categorical, not hypothetical, mm-hmm. right? So an imperative is just something you ought to do, right? Right. But a hypothetical imperative says always, if you're this kind of person, do this thing. Or if you really want this, do this thing. But a categorical imperative just says, do this thing. Or don't do this thing. Mm. Full stop, right? And Kant sees the notion of categorical imperative as essential to this enlightenment idea of confidence in your own reasoning abilities because the categorical imperative, precisely because it doesn't have any antecedent, is just going to be the same for Mm, everyone, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. And it doesn't involve any fancy knowledge of religious texts. It doesn't involve any detailed understanding of human psychology, right? Kant presents the groundwork as sort of a ground clearing. He thinks, look, if you think that... Ethics is about what sentiments you ought to have, or you think it's about human nature and what it's like and how human beings ought to flourish and so on. That's introducing these complications that you don't need to introduce, right? What you need is something sparkling in its simplicity. And that's what gives everyone with native human reason the ability to grasp it, Mm, mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. And so that's why the first form of the categorical imperative really basically just says you're doing the right thing if the principle of your action is something that you could will to be the principle of everyone's action, right? That is, in technical terms, something you could will to be a universal law. 
And if you like the thought of experiment, you could imagine it to be a universal law of nature, like a law of gravity or something like that. It's not that. It's not a causal law. But you can imagine it that way. So you could see, well, what's it like if everybody does this, mm-hmm. right? And so the, the motivation is extraordinarily democratic, or maybe better one should say egalitarian, right? Okay. Um, and then it connects with this thing that is very important for Kant, which is self-respect, right? So we already sort of saw that in this, like, dare to know, use your own reason. Don't defer to what other people say if you don't understand why they think that, Yeah. right? Um, have confidence and respect in yourself, in your own rationality. And that's the second form of the categorical imperative is respect humanity, that is rational nature, in other people, just like you respect it in yourself, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But it's important that you respect it in yourself, mm. right? Mm-hmm. That matters. Kant thinks you have an obligation to develop your talents. <laughs> if you don't, you're disrespecting your own humanity. Hmm. And you're not allowed to do that, right? Um, and so there, there's this theme of self-respect that's really important. And then there's this theme of an ideal community, right? And it's uh, sometimes Kant calls it a kingdom of ends or a realm of ends, right? And there okay. the imagination is so the categorical imperative is do what would be the right thing to do if you lived in a world where everybody was moral, right? Do what would be the right thing to do in a world in which everybody was doing that thing, right? And that makes it, in a certain sense, so simple, right? Because what Kant's saying is, you don't have to calculate the consequences in this world as opposed to that world. You're supposed to act like you're in that world, yeah, and that's your role. Part in, of that world. That's right. That's yeah. your role in bringing it apart mm-hmm. as best as you can, right? That's amazing. Um, so all of this is categorical, and it very much reflects um, a view about society that the Enlightenment figures are trying to promote. Right, a view that status shouldn't matter anymore, right? And all the Enlightenment figures are in this line. Now, it must be said they are not always very consistent about um, uh, uh, not caring about status, right? They tend to care about status when it comes to gender or race uh, right, or sometimes right. religion, even, mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. on. But the idea, particularly in Kant and in lots of, say, these Enlightenment lodges, right, like Freemasons and so on, where you would have anonymity inside these communities, is that you're creating a different kind of community where social status doesn't carry the day anymore, where instead what carries the day is what Jürgen Habermas calls the forceless force of the better argument. Right. That's the community that you're trying to create. And that's a community in which noble status, clerical, religious status, where none of that is supposed to go into the hopper when you're weighing arguments. Right. The Hmm. fact that my priest tells me this is the right thing to do. Mm Well, if he says this is the right thing to do for reason A, I should listen to reason A and try and decide whether that's a good reason or not, 
But the fact that he's a priest, that doesn't matter. Right. Right. That that just gets carved off as rationally irrelevant for the purposes of making that decision. So right? it's not his role. It's the reason behind it. That's and, right. And, and the rule behind it and the applicability of that rule to something that could be universal. That's right. With these aspects of self-respect and sort of living in this... Yep. sadly hypothetical world where yeah. you know everybody's acting in this way and it is just this sort of moral world this kingdom of ends that's fascinating i mean a thank you because i feel like i learned a, more about kant in the last you know 15 minutes than i had in three full courses um maybe the probably says more about me um also though uh, maybe i'm just older and wiser now mm-hmm. but i doubt that's true either um the other thing, though, is that I found that really empowering and inspiring. I like. I guess I didn't realize Kant had that sort of, or maybe I've just never heard it explained so effectively. Just to sort of, you know, like value yourself, but yeah. also like value your own capacity. Like, don't listen to like. Uh, well, maybe this is my own political bent, but don't listen to authority. Don't like yeah, yeah, take yeah. these things as they're handed. De- Trust yourself to be able to use yeah, yeah, your yeah. reason and figure out, you know, what something, whether it's a scientific inquiry or an ethical inquiry yeah. like yeah it sounds very self-empowering in terms of and something that's universally applicable at least in the sense that everyone that has reason every human being can follow this sort of yeah, yeah. self-guided principle of um discovery and action i think is a big part of it of acting in this way do you think that's that's fair i think that's right i mean yeah. kant's idea is you don't need to be a magnificent political operator. You don't have to be an insightful observer of human psychology. That's not what ethics is about, hmm. right? Okay. Ethics is about being right with yourself and right with other people. And that's a yeah, simple that relationship. Right. Yep. It's a simple relationship <laughs> of respect. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that produces good consequences, and sometimes it doesn't produce good consequences. Right. But, I mean, right, this is the hardcore part of Kantian ethics. That's not really relevant. Right. Right. What's right. important is that basic relationship of respect, being right with yourself and being right with others, Right. Um, and in this sense, broadly, it's what maybe we call a deontological or non-consequentialist theory. Right. It, really, it, the outcome isn't what's your, what is of concern. That's right. It's the reason behind the rule you're acting on. Um, and in a sense, your conviction to always act in this yeah. way, you know, even yeah, if yeah, everybody yeah. else isn't just, to, yeah. Um, so I want to bring this back just in the last couple minutes, because I know you're, you're a busy man. <laughs> And you got many places to be and things to do, but thank you again for the time. But this is oh, so interesting. Um, so I want to bring this back to the idea of social media. And one of the things uh-huh. that bothers me about social media, and you were talking about, you know, it's not the anonymity of the big city. It's actually like a global small town, yeah. right? Covers the world, but it's a small yeah, town. Yeah. And that's that's really interesting to me. But one of the things that bothers me most about social media, and maybe this is a little, you know, like curmudgeonly, and this is just a blanket statement, but is the idea of cyberbullying and yeah. that people can hide behind this cyber wall, yeah. right? The social media space, the platform, the internet, yeah. and really say terrible things. And I mean, to anybody and all manner of things, but also there seem to be people out there, like, I mean, if you go on Twitter, for example, that literally do nothing but just say mean things Troll to people. Me. And yeah. yeah, exactly. The idea of trolling, you know, just yeah. bullying people and trolling people in this safe space 
uh, insofar as they don't actually have to confront a human being face to face, the yeah, safe yeah. space of you know the cyber world and social media and the internet. I'm wondering if you if there's a useful way. Maybe this won't change the world, but like if there's a useful way to sort of apply these ideas of the categorical imperative to that, to help explain to people that from, you know, a moral philosophical standpoint, or at least a Kantian one, that it's really just, it's it's not even self-respecting or self-serving in any positive way to conduct yourself in this way, because surely you don't want to will a world where everybody's just really just exaggeratedly mean for lack of a better way to put it to everyone else you know does that does that make sense i mean is that maybe um, yeah i mean one of the things about the giant small town that um uh that social media creates are these really strong negative emotions primarily sometimes positive but primarily negative emotions Mm um uh about people that you've never met right so at least in a small town it takes years to develop those sorts of resentments (laughs) maybe it takes generations right and then boy it's hard to get rid of them but in social media you don't even have to have met the person right a single post can generate this and then the sheer reach of it right can multiply by thousands of remarks Right. And so the sheer number of remarks generates a new form of status, I think. I don't know, it's mass cultural status or something like that. Right. Hmm. Both, you know, if you're posting something and you're hoping to get a thousand likes or a thousand followers to your page or something like that. But equally, if you're getting this cyber bullying and so on. Right. I mean, if. I post something and, um, you know, whatever, I'm sitting in West Lafayette, Indiana, and somebody in San Francisco posts a snarky remark, uh, you know, as a response to my post. Well, one of those things that maybe I don't even read it. Maybe I don't even care about it, right? I don't know who this person is. What do I care? But a thousand of those, that's a little harder to let roll (laughs) off your back. Um, And so I think in a lot of ways, it's a a reinstantiation of a kind of conception of status, right? Hmm. That is sort of precisely the kind of thing that Kant... Um, was trying to fight against, mm-hmm. right? Mm. It, it, it's, if you like, the opposite of the an anonymity of the Enlightenment lodges, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It's magnifying your name recognition yeah. and turns everybody into their own brand. Yeah. Um, and so I think that aspect of it the, um, I don't know what you want to call it, the narcissistic aspect of it mm, okay. um, encourages people not to be honest with themselves, right? It, it encourages people not to be right with themselves in a certain sense, right? Um, and you got to th- be right with yourself. That's right. And, <laughs> and I think it also <laughs> encourages, um, it, it's such a, it, I think it's paradoxical. On the one hand, it's such a strong form of communication hmm. because you can reach so many people. And on so the, quickly. So quickly. And frequently. Yeah. On the other hand, it's such a weak form of communication because every person you reach, you reach in such an absolutely minimal way, right? And so um, I think a lot of people who are, 
I don't know this, right? But I suspect that a lot of people who are trolls on online media would never say those things what, to another yeah. person face to face, right? Yeah. There's whether it's shame or whatever the triggers are, mm -hmm. hopefully they're actually moral triggers, yeah. right? Where you recognize, wait a minute, this is a moral situation. If I say this to somebody now, I'm expressing an ex uh, a substantial amount of disrespect to them, and I'm not willing to do that. But typing something into a comment box on Facebook is just not going to trigger the same reaction. It's, it, it, my sense is it doesn't register to people as an ethical issue because it doesn't register to people that they are actually forming a relationship with somebody else that expresses respect or disrespect for them. Um, and so I think... You don't see the effect in the person you're saying this to. They don't have the right. opportunity to look you in the eyes and say, you know, that really hurt my feelings, which, that's by right. the way, can be an incredibly effective way to diffuse a situation, is to look at someone and just say, like, that really hurt when you said that's right. that. You know? Nobody <laughs> likes that. No. That's really no, uncomfortable. Yeah, right. Exactly. But again, to come back to Kant, right? Yeah, yeah. If you're thinking about things from Kantian, through a, or looking at them through a Kantian lens... Mm -hmm. You shouldn't have to see the consequences, yeah. right? Yeah, you yeah. should right. Okay. be able to say already, look, this isn't, I mean, lots of these things I think you would want to say, this isn't something that a self-respecting person would say. Mm -hmm. And then yeah. you would also want to say, this isn't something that treats the humanity or rational nature of the other person as being an end in itself, that is, as being fundamentally valuable, yeah. right? And so, I mean, it is certainly true. I mean, it's like climate change or any of these other mass ethical phenomena. My individual contribution, right? If I'm a troll and I ruin somebody's life <laughs> by negative comments on a social media post, odds are I was one of 10,000 people, right? It's really hard if what you really care about are consequences to figure out how much you're ethically responsible for that. But again, to go back to Kant's hmm, insight, yeah, yeah. if what you care about the principle of your action, number one, it's totally irrelevant what those other 9,999 people did. And number two, it's not at all hard to figure out what the ethical valence of that action is. Right. And anybody can do that. And you don't need yeah. to know a whole bunch about social media to do that. You don't need to know anything about that person about whom you're talking to know that. Right. You just know that. Yeah, that's awesome. I think this is a great place to stop. We could keep going. But thank right. you so much. Again, Thanks for having me. Yeah. Yeah. I want to thank our guest today, professor of philosophy and head of the Department of Philosophy here at Purdue University, Dr. Chris Yeomans. And a special, special thanks to the producer of the podcast, Ray S. Espinoza. Again, I'm Matthew Kroll, and stay tuned for future episodes of The Grindstone. Chris, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. The Grindstone is brought to you by the Department of Philosophy at Purdue University and is supported by the College of Liberal Arts at Purdue. Our intro and outro music is by Al Terity. You can follow the Department of Philosophy at Purdue on Facebook at Philosophy at Purdue 
on Twitter at Philo, all caps, P-H-I-L-O, underscore Purdue, and on Instagram at Philo, underscore Purdue.